This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season will bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together other like-minded organizations who are focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. You're about to hear from Disciple First, a Discipleship.org partner. But before we jump into this episode, I want to share with you a related resource written by Disciple First's founder. It's something you can download for free. Founder Craig Etheridge wrote Invest in a Few. It's a short ebook about getting started with discipleship personally by investing in just a few people. It's a short, practical, and relatable resource. Download it at discipleship.org slash ebooks. Today's episode features the organization called Disciple First, and it's from their track at the National Disciple Making Forum called Leading Your Church to Become an Intentional Disciple Making Church. The episode is Planting a Disciple Making Church, featuring Gibson Largent. Take a listen. All right, welcome. Uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you are a church planter? Just raise your hand if you're a church planter. How many of you are considering planting a church? All right, so a number of you. Uh, how many of you have been in a church plant before? All right, a lot of you. So this is a, this is a veteran group, and, uh, and so I'm not going to share likely a lot of new things with you. I'm here to report on some principles. Um, when I was in third grade, I remember sitting at the top of uh, 8th Street in Noble, Oklahoma, on the top of a big hill, and Clay Morris was sitting on his mongoose. It had spider rims and mags, and uh, we had just constructed a large ramp at the bottom of this huge hill with bricks and plywood. And Clay zoomed down the hill at full speed and hit the ramp and went through the ramp and not up the ramp. And I remember watching him face first, 30 feet or so sliding and rolling and coming up just full of blood, and me at the top of the hill saying, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and he just went home and I just said, well, that was, that was it. And sometimes we learn best when we see somebody else crash and burn. And so what I want to share with you uh, this afternoon is planting a church, intentionally using a disciple making strategy. And it may serve the same purpose that Clay Morris's bicycle jump served for you. If you're about to plant a church to learn from some of the things and you might just look at me and say, well, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but there are some things that you might want to do. So uh, I don't have as much content. There's not a big PowerPoint. There's not a lot of note-taking. You feel free to share, um, write down anything that you feel is valuable. And we're a small enough group that we can interact with each other. And as a group of church planters, that might be as helpful as we go. And so uh, I want to um, honor, I want this to be the most valuable time for you, especially in this 3.15 time frame when lunch is wearing off and sugar might not be enough and caffeine might be enough, not be enough to keep you going. So, so let's, uh, let's get started. Uh, this breakout session is really about the challenges of disciple making in a church plant context. That's one item that this session is about. How do you plant a church with a disciple making strategy? And how can you stay intentional about disciple making in a church plant context? There's just no doubt about it. A church plant is different. Um, the church planter and his family uh, are experiencing pressures 
and temptations that are different. I wouldn't say better or worse or harder than a regular pastor or a missionary or anything else. They're just different, aren't they? You've planted a church before, and, and so some of the challenges that we, that we struggle with as it relates to disciple-making is in any church planter training that you've been through or in any veteran stories that you've heard, a significant number of your core team isn't with you five years after you plant. And that's been many of your experiences. And so the biggest question that you have to ask is, how do I make disciples of a group that's not going to be here three years from now to help sustain and build this ministry? That's a real challenge that church planters have to face. Another one is the church planter wears a dozen different hats, right? You're a fundraiser. Um, You're a mission team coordinator. You are a partner liaison. You've got 12 partners that you're trying to report to and get funds from and stay accountable to. Uh, You have to report through your denominational agencies or sending boards. Uh, You have to maintain a family life. You have to train a core team. You have to do missional activity within your local community. You have to exegete your community. You have to preach sermons. You have to train a core team. There's just a number of hats that a church planter has to wear in order for that church plant to launch well and to be a viable church five years after launch. And so disciple-making becomes one more priority to a really crowded schedule, right? Um, A third challenge for the church planter is we have to articulate and commit to a well-developed strategy for disciple-making in the tension of crowd-gathering. There's a constant tension between do I invest in a small group of people or do I attract a crowd? And sometimes that tension doesn't have to be there. And throughout the time here, I want to help us tease out that. Part of the pressure that a church planter feels is there are likely already a dozen great churches in your target area that has every program in place, that has better music, <laughs> that has a better facility, that has a better speaker, to be honest, uh, that, that has so many things going for it, and you find yourself unnecessarily or subconsciously competing with churches in your area when it doesn't have to be that way. The area that we planted in, in northeast Philadelphia, or in the northeast suburbs in the Philadelphia area, there are within seven miles of our church plant location 125,000 people. Um, out of that number of people, 30% self-identify as belonging to or attending a church regularly. But that left 78,000 people or so that didn't. And so it was a constant tension for us to try to figure out how are we more um, geared to reach those who aren't going to go to a church rather than trying to take sheep from these other churches. That's another challenge. Um, Another challenge is just the nature of a church plant. It's largely unimpressive in your facilities, right? I mean, our first, we met at a basement at first, then we outgrew that, and then we met in a house upstairs. We graduated to the upstairs area. Uh, Then we graduated to birthday party room A at a bounce facility. And once we outgrew birthday, I have a great picture of me with a pulpit 
of a trash can with a lid on it uh, with the, 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 the throne where the kid sits for his birthday and all the, you know, and our kids thought church was the best thing ever because they got to jump for two hours while the parents did church. That was their Sunday school. Um, we went from there to a, a church's choir loft for a few months, then to a library. Then we moved to a park and we met under a tree for six months. Uh, then we went to a middle school. And, and all the places where we met, 10, and, 10 total, no one would have ever been impressed by <laughs> anything that we were doing. And that's kind of the nature of a church plant. Uh, unimpressive facilities, unimpressive music, unimpressive speaker environment, crowd sizes. And so you're drawing an unusual mix of people. And it's from the people that you're drawing that you're now challenged to make disciples. And so there's a, there's a challenge inherently there. And then lastly, one of the challenges that a church planter faces are near impossible expectations. As soon as you start, all of the organizations that sponsor you, all the churches that sponsor you, all the individuals that sponsor you, you've worked hard to fundraise and to get support. And it's almost like that sand... You know, you flip that sand over and you have a ticking time limit on how much support you have. I was lucky to have five years and 10 to 12 sponsors. Most church planters don't get that. But one of those organizations said, they, this was their expectation of me. They said, Gibson, in year one for X amount of money, we want you to reach new people with the gospel. And then in year two, we want you to lay out for us how you're going to disciple them. And then in year three, we want to see how those you have discipled are reaching new people with the gospel, and then your funding is cut off. That is an impossible task. Here's 12 months, go reach a dozen new people for Christ. Here's another 12 months, disciple them. And here's another 12 months, expect that new group of believers to go and disciple people with the funding that we have uh, given you. Uh, a lot of different organizations will place different expectations on you, but um, that's zero margin of error uh, in order for you to plant. And so planting has with it its own challenges. Now, I've planted two churches. The first church I planted was in Oklahoma City. Um, it was church planting with training wheels. <laughs> uh, I had like 23 families from um, an existing large inner city church. They all lived in a similar suburb. They were all sort of regional. I wasn't tasked with preaching every week or casting vision. I had all the resources of the large inner city church. Um, I had manuals. Um, we bought $80,000 of portable church equipment. Uh, I remember the business meeting where I was nervous about how to present this budget to the decision makers. And one guy just said, well, we spent more than that on the steeple. We might as well just buy the." He just, with a, with a decision, he bought all that equipment and we were able to it was it was the it was church planting with training wheels on and and yet it was a great ex learning experience for us and so through that i learned um some of the challenges another challenge was we went to a weekend in a hotel and in this hotel weekend we did a thing called basic training and at the end of basic training i had a 200 page binder and it was like deploying you out of an airplane into hostile territory with a binder. <laughs> that was my, that was my field guide to know what to do for the next five years. 
Um, and at that time, uh, three out of every ten church plants um, survived. Those were fatality days. Uh, the the blood on the battlefield for church planters was was uh, was was very. Uh, there was a lot of failed church plants. The the training and the assessment processes are much better now, uh, almost twenty years later. Um, but in that, I learned some of the varieties of church plants. You can have a missional community church plant. You can have a house church network church plant. Uh, you can have um, a a sort of large launch worship service church plant. And and in my experience, of all of these, the most common type of church plants are those that gather a core team, train that core team for how to do a Sunday morning worship service and some small groups. Does this sound familiar? You do a lot of outreach in a targeted area. You send out thousands of mailers and you build up to a launch date in which everybody brings their friends and families and coworkers and 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 at this deal it's a big blowout and you have music and then and then at this sort of large launch then the next week you're sort of your crowds will reduce down to what they're probably going to be uh, normally and then you try to build a worship service and then from the worship service then you're trying to build uh, a church and you're trying to eventually build small groups, and then you're trying to eventually build disciples. Of all those, that's the most common type. I don't know if it's an unwritten rule in church planting manuals, but it seems like the large launch for a Sunday morning service is the typical focus point for a church plant. Just raise your hand if that's been your experience in the past with church planting. Anybody else? Large launch, uh, and then from that, try to build a crowd. It's a it's the most common strategy that I've experienced everywhere. I worked with um, I went to seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and during that time, I worked two church plants um, specifically, and worked to plant three churches in Newfoundland, Canada, and uh, did a, a missiology course and an anthropology course, and spent several weeks. Uh, in, in Newfoundland, trying to church plants and do exegeting communities. Um, through all that, this was the most common type of church plant. Then I left seminary in Kentucky and went to work at a church plant in Philadelphia. It was planted in 2000. That church that was planted in 2000 planted another church in 2007. I came to work there in 2008 and in 2009, they planted a second church out of this eight-year-old church plant. In 2011, they supported a third church plant. And in 2012, I and my family and a group of six other families living in a different suburb felt the Lord calling us to go plant. So we were the fourth church plant. And it has since planted three other churches. This church plant that's not even 20 years old has planted a number of churches. It's a reproducing church model. And if you were here for earlier sessions, you heard that a disciple-making culture, the most natural result of that culture will be a church-planting movement. And we're experiencing that in the Philadelphia suburbs. Uh, praise the Lord. But in that, this is the most common kind of church plant that we saw. And so coming into that, I had a different influence and a different strategy, and that is, can we plant a church that doesn't start with the focal point of a large launch Sunday morning worship service? 
What if we set that aside and we actually believe the things that we say in here? If I make disciples with a small group of people and they multiply and they multiply and they multiply, that a church will, will result where disciples are being multiplied. So there were three influences that led me to plant the church with this strategy. And I'll tell you how that church fleshed out in a few minutes. But I want to share with you how I came to that conclusion and how I got to the place where I wanted to plant a church with a different mentality altogether. You'll decide if that's for you. We'll describe pitfalls, challenges, places where I failed, you know, the ramp where Clay ruined himself. You're going to see some places where I messed up and you'll say, well, you shouldn't have done that. And I'll say, you're right. I shouldn't have. I did it, but I shouldn't have. And hindsight is, is wonderful. But I am six years after planting that church. So I, I was telling a guy earlier today, I'm just sort of out of the woods where I can now be in a real reflective place and see with some more clarity, a, a, some more perspective about what I would do differently. And I want to get to that in a few minutes. But three influences that led me to want to plant with this in mind. Because if you're considering planting, you need to know if this strategy is viable for you. And these three influences um, were what led me to this place. The first influence for me was I am from a disciple-making heritage. And I have a disciple-making conviction. A disciple-making heritage and a disciple-making conviction. I was saved from an atheistic, immoral background at age 17 in a suicidal sort of moment in my garage. I prayed, Lord, if you're real, I can't live like this anymore. I had a pregnant girlfriend. I carried an abortion clinic phone number in my pocket. I had a drug addiction and an alcohol addiction, and I just didn't want to live anymore. And so I got to a place where I cried out to the Lord. And the very next night on my way out to the garage, a stranger knocked on my door and he said, if you died today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? And I said, I don't know. But he did the old EE evangelism. Have you ever heard of that? The evangelism explosion presentation. And I got saved. I was converted and he, he sort of gave me a shove in the right direction and said, go back to your room and read the gospel of John and tell God about all your problems. And within short amount of time, uh, my life was just radically different. And so from that came a passion for conversion. Uh, I was passionate about evangelism and sharing the gospel and conversion to the degree where I um, bought 10,000 gospel tracts. And I thought, um, I'm going to, over the next four years, distribute. I call them at-bats. Every gospel track was an at-bat. And I'm going to try to get 10,000 at-bats by distributing and having personal conversations in my daily life uh, over this four-year period. That was my goal. I stopped counting at 7,700 or so, something like that. But I was just passionate to, for conversions. I wanted to see people get saved. I was younger, maybe in mid-20s. And something happened that changed that. Um, in our city, uh, one night on a winter night, um, the news reported that a, an infant had been delivered and that this infant had been exposed and placed in a dumpster. Uh, it was below freezing temperatures in our neighborhood in, in Oklahoma City on sort of Northwest 12th Street. 
and a neighbor heard crying and he went out to the dumpster and found this baby and there was this concerned search for the mother. It turned out to be a teenage girl who had hidden a pregnancy and, and this concerned the whole community. And it really struck me in a different way as I grieved through that and wondered how that was, you know, how that was possible. And, and there was just a lot of concern about that. And it dawned on me, the Lord sort of used that experience that, that if you expose a baby, it won't survive. And at the same time, I was learning about disciple making, and I realized that that a new believer who is not discipled um, has a less less of a chance of survival of finishing well if they're not discipled. And I began to learn about the process of um, of multiplication. I wanted my my conversion passion changed into a disciple making passion. I studied Matthew 4:23 through 5:2 where Jesus had large crowds coming to him and at one point in that passage it says he withdrew from those crowds and went high on a mountain and he began to invest his life in the longest series of teaching um, known in, in Jesus' life the sermon on the mount right he he went up to and he was teaching his disciples and he abandoned the large crowds to invest in a few and that stuck with me uh, to invest your life in a few people. And so I developed a passion for disciple-making and for being a disciple, but but I didn't know how to be a disciple. And so I started to pray. I was in a bad spot in my life. I struggled and, and um, with some character issues coming from a new as a new believer. So I prayed that the Lord would provide a man to disciple me. One day I'm delivering a rental car, and I look over, and there's a church uh, sign in a part of town that I'm not used to, and the, I just felt like the Holy Spirit said, go to that church. So the next night, I went to that church, and I met um, Craig Etheridge, and he had been praying passionately that God would provide someone to disciple. And so the Lord just matched that up, and I began to learn what it means to be discipled and what it means to um, to, to to make disciples. So I had this disciple-making heritage that grew in me and a personal disciple-making conviction. That's the first influence. The second influence was seeing the principle of multiplication. Um, if you see the principle of multiplication, that if you invest in a few and they invest in a few and they invest in a few, it's the same idea as that would you rather have me give you a dollar a day for a thousand days or would you rather me give you a penny today and double it tomorrow and double that the next day and double that the next day? You don't have to be a mathematician to know that, that after a certain amount of time, Multiplication catches up and far surpasses addition. Right? You're not. You're at a disciple making conference. That's not a new concept for anybody in the room. I understand. And the third influence was this burning question: Could we plant a church by solely making disciples, training them to go out and make disciples who can make disciples who can make disciples? That is where disciple-making happens strategically and intentionally, and it is the crown jewel of a church plant. Will a church be the result instead of if I launch a worship service and try to reach people for the gospel and put them in small groups and assimilate them and do church and then try to later develop a disciple-making strategy, could I flip all that and just focus intensely on disciple-making. It was a risk, but it was a risk worth taking. Um, I believe in this multiplication strategy. (laughs) 
Craig presented this formula here to us at an old Ignite conference. And, uh, and this strategy, this formula, was that prayer and worship and strategy worked out over time times the power of the Holy Spirit would equal multiplication. And that if we prayed fervently and if we had a steady diet of proclaiming the Word and the Gospel over a period of time with the right strategy uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit that we could experience multiplication. I just believed it. And so as a result of that, the S for us became we're going to disciple people and we're going to fixate on Paul's words to Timothy, the things you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will be able to teach others also. That's four generations deep. And so for every core team meeting, we focused on a disciple-making strategy, and we just challenged them to go four deep. This church won't launch. It won't go. It won't survive if you don't become a disciple who can make disciples who can make disciples. And so let me just tell you the story of how that played out. In 2011, six families gathered in a living room, and we laid out this strategy. We focused on one and a half years completely from 11 to 13, so mid-2011 to um, sort of our public launch in 2013. That was a time of intense disciple-making. We picked material. We used a book called One-on-One with God. Uh, We used another book by Donald Whitney called um, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. We focused on an evangelism program. We did a lot of prayer walking. We divided our whole city into regions, and we prayer walked every region 12 times a year. Um, And through that, every person that we baptized came from the region that we prayer walked the year before. And from that strategy, each new person, each person on our core team would try to disciple a person from those regions where new people were coming. And in the process of that, we did some other things that were counterintuitive. We almost de-emphasized our worship gathering. I mean, our worship gathering was terrible. I mean, let me just tell you, there were days when I didn't even want to come to my church. <laughs> I remember one day we were out of worship leaders. I mean, we were just out. We hadn't grown. With it. The worship service was just struggling. And my son broke his elbow. And my wife at the time was leading worship by playing tracks in the background. And she had to stay overnight at the hospital. And so... She couldn't lead worship that morning, but there were 120 people gathering, and something had to be done. So I came in, and I downloaded some YouTube videos, and I sat in the front row, and I just was humiliated for any person who brought a guest that day, and it was the worst experience of worship. I didn't even want to ever go to my church again after that. It was so bad, but we de-emphasized the worship service and focused on disciple-making. But just to finish that story, the next day I found a guitar on Craigslist, and I, I bought it, and I went and I booked a lesson, and I went to the lesson that Monday, just immediately after, and I told the guy, I don't want to learn to play guitar. I want to learn to play these songs right here. Show me where to put my left hand, and show me what to do with my right hand. And all week long, I wore nubs on my fingers, and Sunday morning when I stood up to play guitar, everybody laughed 
But I played those four songs like I was Chris Tomlin and, and led worship. And, and after that, everybody just felt sorry. And so four other people bought guitars and they did the same thing I did. And, and the Lord got us out of that jam. But, but our disciple making process was the opposite of our worship service on Sunday morning. It was going fantastic. We were assimilating new believers. We had several people in our core team that had gone four deep. Um, and the overflow of disciple-making was so much better. The life change that was taking place within people's lives from being lost to coming into these small group relationships where they were learning how to walk with the Lord, uh, they were learning how to share their faith, they were understanding the gospel, they were understanding how to let go of addictions. All of that overshadowed, all the life change that was taking place overshadowed what was taking place on Sunday morning. And so it worked. We, we were able to meet in 10 different locations. Um, and, and through that painful sort of worship gathering experience and the focus on disciple making, we found that there was a small movement of multiplication happening despite all the challenges. Um, we sent people annually to conferences, to uh, different disciple-making conferences. We spent lots of money on disciple-making. We spent lots of time and training in disciple-making. Uh, but eventually, people won't put up with a bad worship service in our culture. And so we had some rough middle years. So I want to say a few concluding points before I, I take some questions and have some interaction here. There are some conclusions that I want to give you, maybe six here. What did I learn and what would I do differently if I were to plant a church today in a disciple-making strategy? Um, one of the things I would do differently is I would view disciple-making as a complete process from evangelism to being established in the faith into ministry and reproduction. If you're familiar with Jim Putman's uh, six stages or five stages of where dead in sins to infant to child to young adult to adult to reproducer. Seeing that whole process helps think through the whole disciple-making wheel and, and, and thinking through that whole process puts a grid for every ministry activity that takes place. And so now prayer walking becomes a part of an outreach and missionary sort of mission teams coming in. All that has to do with the front end of disciple making. Um, then working through the different stages of growth um, helped emphasize and gave our people a vocabulary for the activity that we were doing. Everything got viewed through an entire process of disciple making. So being able to, to describe and articulate the disciple-making stages and the process of, of spiritual growth um, was one way to view, to, 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 to do differently or to do better if I were to plant a church today. I would, I would help people walk through all of those stages. Um, another thing I would do differently, I would emphasize the fact that good material is no substitute for investing your life in someone else. One of the bad things that we ran into were a number of people went through good material. We had good material. Uh, there are good material. There's better material now, and good tools come and go, and better tools get developed. But one of the pitfalls in the disciple-making strategy is that people say, I did that. What's next? You understand? 
I went through that book. Now that's a disciple, right? And sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking we went through a book and so now a disciple is made. And in that original core team, there were people who went through the book and then looked for what's next rather than investing their life. Now, a lot of that has to do with me and the one who invests in them that not modeling it well. And so I would hope to do that differently to show that just going through a book is not the same as making a disciple, right? You understand that? That investing your life is different um, and really taking concern with the person. When Craig started to disciple me and Justice Kerr and two or three other guys, um, we, we took fly fishing lessons and we took a trip to Red River, Colorado and to we fly fished for a weekend. And we built up this long trip. We stayed at a cabin called the Legacy, right? And we, I still have this framed, you know, five by seven picture of us with hair, all of us at this cabin and me and waiters and Craig holding up this little fish that we caught. And I still have these memories of, of him investing his life. We, we ran four or five triathlons together. We learned to swim um, for com- competing in these triathlons. We ran his neighborhood. He sat on the curb waiting for me and, and I, for him. And, and it was more than just going through a book. It was investing your life. There were times when Julie and I would be at his house and his wife and my wife would be falling asleep and we would just be talking about theology and evangelism and the gospel. And, and I feel bad for him now because if somebody in my church were to do that for me, I would be so exhausted all the time. But, <laughs> but he opened his house, he opened his life, he opened his, his time. It was more than just going through a book. And I would do that better if I were, if I were doing this again. Um, a third thing I would do differently is I wouldn't get discouraged when I choose the wrong people. Have you ever invested in somebody for a long period of time and it turned out to be a bust? Has that ever happened to anybody? They, they, they just became time wasters and no fruit. And one guy left his wife and had an, an affair. And, and I'd given two years of my life to this guy in the process of planting a church trying to model disciple-making, and I don't know how to account for that. Maybe you can help me, but, but knowing who to invest in and who not to invest in, I think there are just challenges on the front end of being able to discern who's good soil and who's not, who's ready for all of your attention and who's not. I guess Jesus lost one, right? Um, so I shouldn't be too hard on myself, but, but I feel like I invested a lot of time in people who just never panned out. And so disciple-making was in starts and fits. I've just recently walked 14 guys through disciple-making material and investing my life in them and having them over to my house. And, and one of those guys tried to reproduce in another, and, and he just described to our group that it just didn't go. They didn't do the work. They didn't respond to him. They didn't respect him. They, they just made excuses. And after six weeks, he just canceled it in frustration. That's a painful process, and there's a lot of difficulty in disciple-making. There's some speed bumps that, that make it challenging, and especially in a church plant environment. So I think I wouldn't get discouraged when I choose the wrong people. Uh, a fourth thing I would do differently is I would recognize that gathering a crowd is still a necessary and viable part of church planting. 
You just can't read the Gospels without realizing that Jesus drew a crowd. And that Jesus from the crowd made disciples. He chose men that were at one time in different crowds. And so while I was sort of trying to pit these two strategies against each other and almost being stubbornly anti-worship service to prove a point, I was pretty much, you know, cutting off my nose to spite my face or I just wasn't, it was an unnecessary tension that I set up. And it, wasn't, it didn't have to be that way. You can have a quality worship gathering and still invest your life in disciple making. And so I would recognize that, that they're not opposed to each other. But I would also recognize that the reality is true of any crowd. There will always be fewer committed disciples. Right? You think about John 6. Jesus turns around and there's a larger crowd following him. And he begins to teach them heavier things. Unless you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you have no part with me. And somebody says, well, I'm not going to follow you. Uh, and, and Jesus eventually turns to his other disciples and says, well, do you want to go also? And they say, well, you're the one who has the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? But Jesus often thinned the crowds uh, by teaching um, the, the, uh, what it meant to follow him. Uh, so understanding that the, there will always be a crowd and that there will always be disciples is not a bad realization to set up in your church plant. But ideally, I do think this, and this statement I think um, is true in my conviction, and that is that ideally your worship gathering is first and foremost an overflow of worship by disciples, by people who love Jesus. I, I am just not for a seeker-sensitive church gathering that panders to unbelievers and waters down the gospel or waters down the preaching or waters down the songs that you sing or in any way waters down the worship service from what it, it I think it is, and that is a, a, an exaltation of Jesus Christ in the, uh, by committed disciples. I think that if you have a robust disciple-making strategy, that your Sunday morning worship will be an overflow of disciples who are walking with Jesus in obedience every single week. I think lost people don't need a cool song service and and sort of an eight-step-to-a-better-life message. I think they need to experience the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit through the exaltation of Jesus Christ through the overflow of mature and growing disciples. So I do think that the worship service has to have a different standard than many church plants launch with. Um, I want to share a couple of regrets. After three years, money started to decrease. I had to pick up two other jobs, started driving for Uber, right? So I'm working 60 hours a week to plant a church, trying to disciple people in my home. I'm not making enough money because we're three or four years into a church plant where every year our funding is going down. And so now I'm picking up 20 to 40 hours a week, uh, evenings and weekends, driving a car. And so as a result, I shortchanged the process of disciple making in exchange for crowd gathering. Uh, and that was a hard thing. I felt like we failed in what we intended to do with a disciple-making strategy. 
and, and sort of left that. And it was in the ditch for a couple years. I wasn't investing in people. I wasn't keeping people accountable to who they were investing in. It just became a, a difficult two or three years. Um, and, and, and I regret that. Uh, I regret not keeping the gas pedal down on a disciple-making strategy. I'll let you speak to that later. Um, I think if I were to plant another church, I would still utilize a disciple-making prioritized strategy. As hard as it was, as difficult as the pitfalls were, I don't think it's part of who I am. It's part of my heritage. It's part of my conviction. Um, I think I would do it differently, but I know I would still do it. And so I want to leave you with a handful of ways to maintain an an intentional disciple-making culture in your church plant. And then I want to open it up for some uh, some of your questions. How to maintain an intentional disciple-making culture in your church plant. Number one, I think I would always model it. I would just always have people I'm investing in. Number two, I would talk about it, preach about it, small groups, uh, personally, conversations in the hallway, conversations in the community. Uh, I would just model it and I would talk about it more. Um, To maintain... An intentional disciple-making culture, I would emphasize obedience-based discipleship. Have you heard of E3 Partners out of Dallas? They did the I Am Second strategy. They have a little manual called First Steps. And in that manual, it's how they plant churches internationally. And they have an entire section on that about obedience-based discipleship. Our brother from West Africa that spoke this morning talked a lot about obedience-based discipleship, which is different than curriculum-based discipleship. When we implemented this in our church, we said, uh, if you don't come with so much done, then we're just going to conclude that this is not the right time for you to continue if you're not demonstrating obedience. If you're, not, if you're coming in without doing quiet times for three weeks in a disciple-making course on how to have a personal devotional time with the Lord, then this is just probably not the right time for you to keep going. Um, having an obedience-based discipleship in- increases accountability, and, and it helps develop disciples who take it more seriously than just the easy way of we went through a book and that part is over. Uh, So I would emphasize obedience-based discipleship. I would build visuals that help people assess where they are and communicate clearly what the next steps are. I, I think it's helpful for people to see a map, to understand where they are spiritually and what the next steps in their disciple ship journey are. And then lastly, I would hold disciples accountable. I expect grandchildren was a phrase I often heard Craig say. Hey, you discipling anybody? I need some grandbabies. I need, I need to know who you're investing in. What's going on? I invested a lot in you. I poured a lot of time and attention in you. And, and I expect you to do the same. He set up a standard for me that, that if all of his investment terminated in me, then it was a waste of time. Uh, that somebody invested in him and somebody invested in that person and that I stand in a long line of disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And so if I want to maintain a, a disciple, intentional disciple-making culture in my church plant, I would be sure to hold disciples accountable. All right, any comments or thoughts or questions Yes, sir. In, in the example that you gave in your experience,
experience where you spent 60 hours? The question was when I was working more intensely, more hours, and, and let off the gas a little bit with the disciple-making um, and needed to make more money, and, and how would I have solved that? Is that, is that basically the question? Uh, I don't think it's wrong to have to pick up extra jobs. I'm, I'm in Philadelphia. I'm in the minority. Um, there are a handful of Anglo planters. The majority are international planters um, and African-American planters, and, and most of them don't have near the support that I had. I was blessed to have 10 to 12 um, financial partners. That's the only reason why I feel like our church, one of the reasons why our church plant uh, is as strong as it is today. Um, but those guys, they just focus their priorities better, whereas I was doing a lot of activity and spreading myself too thin, trying to build a service and trying to build a leadership network and trying to invest in other planters and doing a lot of other things where if I had just maintained a focus on what's most important, I think I could have avoided a lot of my busyness. All right, other comments and questions? Internationally, I think, I think they do it well. Your comment was, you know, biblically it's right to make disciples who make disciples and, and to do it that way. I think internationally they do it differently where there is an emphasis on disciple making and there's less of a, in, their, in different cultures, there's less of an emphasis on the Sunday morning worship gathering. And all of our God love them, our denominations and our church planting networks and all that, have such an infatuation with the Sunday morning worship service and the gathering of a crowd and the decreasing support that sometimes you wonder if there is a real commitment to disciple-making and to the Great Commission as opposed to, is there a commitment to launch a crowd? They're looking for something that is different from the disappointments that they had elsewhere. You're exactly right. His observation was in the crowd-gathering worship service. A church plant will often attract unchurched or de-churched people who were previously wounded and bringing in... That's probably 30% of our first two-year flow of visitors were people who were previously churched and wounded by a church, and they bring in an entirely different... um, That You're right. They bring in a different amount of spiritual baggage that makes disciple-making even more challenging with your largest flow of visitors. Um, There are other challenges to the crowd that comes, but that's one that's largely unaddressed is the de-churched who come and bring their issues in. Um, My first church plant with training wheels that I mentioned in Oklahoma City, that core team was 23 families, and each family was... Decent sized. I mean, it was a it was a very. We had a, a launch that was big because we had a lot of families. Um, with this other one, there were only six families, mine included, and so growth. Everybody had a responsibility, and and everybody took on that responsibility, and so to this day, we have seventy percent of our core team still intact for, on that church plant, and I think because there was such large ownership and such an emphasis on disciple-making that they weren't here for a service. They were here in their life. They experienced life change through the disciple-making process. Hey, Gib, just one uh, question. Uh, yeah, the question, uh, the observation was, what, what kind of grit does it require you know, to, through the church planting process? 
And and I could share a couple war stories. You could probably share some war stories of grit that that uh, just stick to itiveness that you had to to maintain. Uh, I trained church planters through the North American Mission Board in the Philadelphia region, and uh, about fifteen over the last five years. The disciple, I mean, the training process now is so much better that the very we we trained them in twelve competencies, and the first competency is calling, and just. You know, when you do premarital counseling, you almost want to let issues arise that would make a couple say, we don't want to get married. <laughs> you almost kind of want to test their commitment or their love or whatever. It's the same, similar with church planting is if there's not a, a serious calling and a conviction that God has got me here for a reason, then when times do get hard, they're going to bail. I, I unfortunately know a lot of church planters in our area that have bailed because there's not a a rock-hard commitment and calling to plant a church because it, it is a labor. I remember one day we didn't have any money and we had $8 in our checking account and we just were out of money. I mean, does the church, I paid, I told the payroll company, pay the secretary and I won't take a paycheck. It was the first time in five years I didn't take a, page, a paycheck. And on the day that the paycheck was supposed to be issued, I had, I think, $8 in savings and $2 in checking. And my wife looked at me in the kitchen and just with all the expended patience and frustration that she had trying to hold it together, she said, can I transfer money to go buy eggs? And it was just a kick, you know. Uh, It's just one of those kind of experiences that you just think, Lord... I mean, didn't you call me to do this? And didn't I move my family? And didn't I sacrifice? And didn't I, you know, it was one of those deals. But then I, I went on a, a four-hour prayer walk. And at the end of that four hours, I just reinforced and remembered the calling and the commitment to do it. And I mean, it's just one of those stories that church planters get. But I checked an email, a guy named Stuart from Oklahoma City, said the Lord put you on my heart 24 hours ago, and and uh, he told me to transfer money through PayPal, and it was for the amount of my paycheck. Um, while I was out walking, uh, my wife went out to the van to go get eggs and scrape change, and somebody had put $200 on her driver's seat. And... Uh, there's just moments in church planting that um, will test you. And, uh, and without a calling and, and a commitment, I just don't see how anybody can make it through times like that. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to get... It's harder and harder to find planters because uh, people's eyes are opened. They know the realities. They've heard the war stories. They, they're, they're counting the cost. And before, you get a parachute, there's the territory, and you just jump, and you don't even know what's coming at you. Now you know what's coming at you, and it's a darker culture. And the statistics that the Barna lady shared earlier tell you that it's a de- de- declining culture uh, spiritually, and, and there's less. So, so it's harder and harder to find church planters. But I'll tell you where they're coming from. 
we're we're receiving missionaries from other countries where God is moving, and and in Philadelphia and on the East Coast, the church planting movement and the churches that are growing the fastest are ethnic churches. It's not Anglo and it's not American churches, but they're they are moving and doing great. I think that's true of every church planting network. It's hard to find people. All right, well, let me do this. Let me just say a prayer over you. Raise your hand if you're about to plant the church. All right, three of you. Hey, can we all pray for these three guys? Um, Yeah, even lay some hands on these guys if you're around them. Um, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your calling on these men and, uh, and your calling on their families. We understand that any work has to happen from you, that you build your church. It's not us, that you promise that you will build your church and that the gates of Hades will not overcome it. We thank you that you are the one who is able to establish your church despite sacrifices and difficulties and obstacles, that the call to go and make disciples who can make disciples is your commission. So I pray that your um, your calling would be established in these men's lives. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name that you would um, establish them so that they may walk out with a firm commitment, knowing that when the shrapnel flies, that you are with them and that uh, no weapon formed against them shall prosper. Uh, we pray that you would strengthen them because we understand that through them represents lost souls who will come to know you and future disciples. So we pray in Jesus' name that you would strengthen them. And we thank you, Lord, that a disciple-making strategy is a great way to plant a church. We see it all over the New Testament. So I pray that we would order our systems and our networks and our um, ways that we fund and support church plants. I pray that they would be uh, friendly toward a disciple-making strategy. We pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment to know how best to order things so that we can see a movement of multiplication through church planting. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. I appreciate your time. That's it for today's episode. Check out Disciple First's founder's book, Invest in a Few by Craig Etheridge. When you go to discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for Invest in a Few. Thanks for listening. Until next time.